You are listening to the Hebane Podcast, where scholarly research into the Hebrew Bible and ancient Near East is brought directly to you. Well, welcome back, everyone. This is Dr. Josh, and today on the Hebane Podcast, we are talking slavery. I know you've heard a lot recently from me uh, over the past year or so about the issue of slavery, particularly in the Hebrew Bible and in the ancient Near East. And today, what we're going to do is talk about it, uh, hitting the high points. So I have a book that came out recently, and it is entitled, uh, Did the Old Testament Endorse Slavery? And in the book, we talk at length about uh, slavery as it comes up in the Hebrew Bible and as it appears generally in the ancient Near East. And we make comparisons between them and talk about what is it that happens in the Old Testament, what happens in the Hebrew Bible. Is there actual, excuse me, is there actual slavery? And what kind of slavery was it? So today what we'll do is give a brief survey of slavery in the Hebrew Bible, uh, slavery in the ancient Near East, and then we'll look at the three main passages very briefly that uh, discuss slavery in the legal texts. Again, we're looking at the high notes here. If you would like something more in-depth, things that go into the wide variety of uh, ancient Near Eastern sources and texts of the Hebrew Bible, then I recommend, of course, that you get a hold of my book. And not so much because of uh, it being my book, but because I have a fairly extensive introductory bibliography where you can find uh, what it is that scholars in the field say about this issue. So let's begin. Why does slavery even come up in this uh, in this arena? Why why is slavery an issue? Uh, it seems like a silly question, but with respect to the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, well, of course, uh, someone coming along and saying the God of the Old Testament endorsed or condoned or um, you know allowed and uh, while he was dealing with slavery. Each of those ideas has its own set of problems that goes along with it. And so ultimately what I find is that uh, people that are defending a certain position uh, of the inerrancy of the biblical text will are very quick to attempt to justify the existence of slavery in the Hebrew Bible or to deny uh, its reality. And these are these are both common things that come up. So what what exactly is the issue? Well, you know, if God does anything from allowing or working with people uh, by allowing slavery in the Hebrew Bible to endorsing the practice of slavery, uh, then you're dealing with um, issues of morality of the God of the Old Testament or of his uh, ability to eradicate a practice uh, that he would consider immoral. So this is a hot-button issue for people that uh, discuss the God of the Old Testament, particularly with respect to atheism or agnosticism, skepticism uh, versus theism or Christianity. So uh, the interesting thing that I've discussed in other places is uh, the difference in what is debated in academic circles about this particular topic Uh, over against what is debated on social media. So many of the things that are debated on social media are not actually debated in academic circles. For example, the existence uh, or the reality in the legal texts of slavery. This is not something that's really debated in academic circles. 
Um, however, it is debated quite a bit on social media. Uh, there's often a very uh, quick and um, realistic, I think, acceptance or understanding of the realities of the types of slavery that existed in the Hebrew Bible in more academic circles. And the reason is because we're all dealing with the same data points. However, on social media, you will find, at least I have, that uh, people are very um, slow to accept uh, the reality of slavery uh, as it was depicted in the legal texts of the Hebrew Bible. So as we uh, you know, look at this, the survey of um, slavery as presented in the Hebrew Bible and as presented in uh, the text of the ancient Near East, remember this is not meant to be exhaustive, but what it's trying to do is highlight uh, some of the, the bigger aspects um, or the more fundamental aspects of slavery in the Hebrew Bible, in the ancient Near East, and uh, to present or to, in order to give the listener um, a good working structure uh, with which or upon which they can build. So before we move on to uh, looking at how slavery was presented in the Hebrew Bible, let's take a look at um, the problem surrounding defining slavery. So one could, um, reasonably speaking, define slavery as presented in the Hebrew Bible, uh, at, like Don Demayev does, Don Demayev in the Anchor Bible Dictionary, says, slavery is the institution whereby one person can hold ownership rights over another. Now this uh, is, again, somewhat uh, somewhat broad because there are different types of slavery. There's debt slavery, there's chattel slavery, but defining slavery as he does as an institution where one person holds ownership rights over another, I think encompasses both of those in different ways. Now, if you look at uh, Westbrook and Wells' book, Everyday Law in Biblical Israel and Introduction, on page 55, they write, Slaves were property that could be bought and sold, exploited for their labor, and in the case of women, exploited also for their sexual and reproductive capacity. Now, I, d- I don't think that they were uh, looking to give a succinct definition, but uh, from a descriptive standpoint, looking at how uh, slavery was depicted in the legal text of the Hebrew Bible, this is uh, what we see. Uh, Kerry Kingyo has a similar distinction uh, that he draws uh, from what we just discussed uh, between temporary debt slaves and permanent chattel slaves, recognizing the existence of both. But again, the central idea being that you have one person having ownership rights over another. Uh, some are just, some of the rights are temporary and limited, others are more permanent and less limited. Now, Culbertson actually, in a 2011 um, Slaves and uh, Households in the Ancient Near East, um, she talks about in the introductory chapter, that it's notoriously difficult to get this type of all-encompassing definition of slavery. And this is a problem in, you know, on social, this is a problem particularly on social media, primarily because people want to define slavery in different ways. And being able to define our terms is absolutely critical in this discussion. 
So often when people say slavery, they think of things like antebellum slavery or shipping people across the ocean, those sorts of things. And both sides of this uh, social media debate will use that type of imagery um, for their own particular purposes. What we want to do is not start with our own definition of slavery and then look for those things in the biblical text and in the ancient Near East. What we want to do is look at what other sources tell us about slavery and then generate our definition based on that. And so from that perspective, that's what Don Demayev is doing. He's saying slavery based in you know, working from the sources to a definition. Slavery is the institution whereby one person can hold ownership rights over another. Let's take a look at, so having given a brief introduction to the problem and having looked at the difficulties in defining slavery in the ancient world, let's take a look at a brief survey of slavery in the Hebrew Bible. First, what are our sources? Now, when we think about the Hebrew Bible, the first thing that we think of are things like the Masoretic Text or the Dead Sea Scrolls. But the thing to remember about them is that these are not the autographs. Right? We don't have the original documents. We're not dealing with originals. We're dealing with texts that are copies that have undergone um, editing and redaction. And they're also in a variety of different genres. And so it's difficult at times to get at uh, not only what those genres are saying, but then trying to figure out what was uh, obtaining in the period that we're looking uh, to get at there in, you know, for example, 8th, 7th, and 6th century Israel, uh, or, you know, a little bit earlier. So not only is it difficult to, you know, get at what the texts themselves are saying, given the, you know, redaction history that they have undergone, uh, but it's also difficult to then move beyond the text and say what was actually obtaining in the early part, middle of the uh, first millennium BCE, uh, the, the period that we're trying to really um, ascertain what was going on. So, you know, we keep that in mind, the sources. What we will be looking at here, given the discussion about, uh, or the problem of discussing God's morality and, and those sorts of things, what we, what we want to do is try to focus our discussion on the laws as set forth in the biblical texts, as opposed to looking at what was actually practiced. Those are two very different questions. You know, what were the laws and what was actually done? Uh, the same can be said, I think, uh, for other periods of time. There's quite a big difference between the laws that were in place and what was actually practiced. So the, the one main distinction that we want to draw, which we will also draw in the wider ancient Near East, the two different types of slaves that we see in the Hebrew Bible, and those are debt slaves and chattel slaves. So debt slaves, particularly in the biblical text, are those that are indentured servants. Uh, they essentially sign up uh, to become slaves for a period of six years, and then in the seventh year they go free. Uh, that is the system that's in place in the biblical text. You see it in Exodus 21 and in Deuteronomy 15. Uh, when we come to uh, Leviticus 25, the situation changes, but we'll get to that later. These are different from chattel slaves. Chattel slaves we see in Leviticus 25, 44 to 46 particularly. And these are those slaves that are not temporary. These are permanent. Um, they are passed down as inherited property. 
and kept for life. So we want to keep the distinction between debt and chattel slaves. And uh, the discussion actually can often hinge on uh, what uh, what type of slave is being discussed um, in a particular passage. So Exodus 21 is notorious for this, being difficult to understand. In certain places, are, are these laws for debt slaves or are they for chattel slaves? So having seen that distinction, we see uh, also that slaves could be purchased. So in Exodus 21.2, you see uh, if someone purchases a slave, there are certain things that will follow. Also, if we turn, I'll turn briefly to uh, Leviticus 22 and read that. Leviticus 22, verses 10 through 11. Uh, No outsider shall eat the holy offering. One who sojourns with the priest or a hired servant shall not eat the holy thing. But if the priest, verse 11, buys a person with his money, he may eat it. And one who is born in his house may eat his food. So the text is distinguishing between foreigners, different types of foreigners, and then uh, a slave that is purchased by a priest and then one a slave that is born in the house of the priest. So slaves could be purchased, and I go into some detail about purchasing and the language of purchasing in the book, and of course give the references for where you can uh, find all of that discussion, both in the biblical text and in the scholarly literature. But slaves could be purchased, and this this wasn't simply purchasing their work, it was purchasing the individual. There's also a distinction that we need to make between voluntary servitude and involuntary, or voluntary slavery and involuntary slavery. And the reason this is important is uh, there are some recently that have proposed that if someone voluntarily becomes a slave, um, that this is somehow this is somehow a defeater in this argument that oh well if you if you can't prove to me that someone was a an involuntary slave, that someone was kidnapped, uh, then it's not slavery. You can't say that slavery existed. And there are several problems with that. The first, I would say, is that this distinction between voluntary and involuntary sometimes is uh, somewhat gray. If you look at a passage like 2 Kings 4, you see a widow who is lamenting that her two sons are getting ready to be taken by the creditor, Now, this would have been a situation that would have been legally voluntary. It would have been legally volitional. The father uh, took on a debt, and he did so voluntarily. And when he defaulted because of his death, when the family defaulted, the creditor came as part of the uh, contract, as part of the agreement, to take away the two children. Now, legally, this was volitional. However, from the you know widow's point of view, I don't think that she would, you know, she certainly was not thinking, "Hooray, I'm you know I'm voluntarily giving up my children." Um, but nonetheless, that was legally volitional, right? Legally voluntary. However, it was not practically uh, volitional, and th- there's a difference that we have to see there. So, kidnapping would be something um, that would not be practically volitional, right? It'd be someone being taken against their will, uh, irrespective of the legality or illegality of that action. It's something they're being taken involuntarily against their will. But the the bigger issue here, I think, between um, legal volition and practical volition 
is that Leviticus 25, when you read through the passage, it is presenting life as an Eved, being treated as an Eved, a servant, a slave, however you want to translate that, as a bad thing. In other words, as we'll see a little bit later in Exodus 21 and in Deuteronomy 15, it was perfectly fine for Israelites, for Hebrews, to be taken as slaves, as Eveds. However, when you get to Leviticus 25, this is now a problem, and God is laying down restrictions saying, no longer can you treat an Israelite, a fellow Israelite, as an Eved. And the reason is because this is a bad thing. This is something that is not seen as beneficial. It is something that is, you know, it's not it's not a good thing for the person who is an Eved. Now, we're not speaking necessarily of a moral evil, uh, but what we're saying is that in the same way that charging someone interest on a loan is not a good thing for the person having to pay that interest, uh, in the same way a person serving as an Eved, this is not a good thing for them. And so God is saying, because you were slaves in Egypt, and I've taken you out, You are never to become slaves again. Therefore, you can't treat fellow Israelites as slaves. So this idea that it's not necessarily a bad thing for someone to volunteer as a slave, and that's perfectly fine, therefore it's not slavery, it just doesn't follow. Leviticus 25 shows that making someone a slave is a bad thing, um, whether they volunteer for it or not. And of course, in Leviticus 25, they would be um, voluntarily becoming a slave, and God says, no, you cannot, you cannot treat them as a slave. You have to treat them as a hired worker. So this, you know, this, this idea that voluntary and voluntary practically and legally is, uh, you know, is, a, is a defeater for slavery being in existence is just it's very problematic. One last thing that I'd like to talk about before we leave this very brief survey of slavery in the Hebrew Bible, and again, we'll get into more detail below in the major passages, uh, is Exodus 21, verses 20 to 21, and the treatment of slaves. So Exodus 21, 20 to 21, appears to be dealing with the issue of abuse from a master. Uh, we see parallels to this in on the ancient Near Eastern legal texts. But here it appears that if the master abuses his slave by beating him to death, um, that this is a punishable offense. But if the slave does not die immediately but survives a day or two, and either then dies or survives, it's debated which one of those is the case, Uh, then the master is not held uh, responsible for that because the slave is his property. And uh, this shows sort of both sides of the coin here for the treatment of slaves. It was expected, you can see in the Proverbs, for example, Proverbs 29, um, that uh, slaves were expected to not simply be verbally corrected, uh, slaves were anticipated. It was anticipated that slaves would be physically disciplined and corrected, and so you know what we see here in Exodus twenty-one twenty to twenty-one is likely the master being held responsible for abusing his slave, not simply for correcting him with a wooden rod. So slaves were expected to be beaten with wooden rods. They uh, were. It's, it appears from this passage that they were. Uh, however, not to be abused beyond this. So there were rights that slaves had, but again, beating them with wooden rods was not something that um, it was illegal, and it was uh, it was expected to be done. 
We talked briefly about the issue of slavery and uh, the problems with defining it, and we've discussed a brief survey of what slavery in the Hebrew Bible looked like. Now let's move on to uh, what slavery looked like, generally speaking, in the ancient Near East. Now, if you thought that the uh, description from the Hebrew Bible was uh, brief, you will think, relatively speaking, that the uh, survey of the ancient Near Eastern material is going to be incredibly brief. Um, but such is the nature of a short podcast. So let's begin by talking about these sources that we have, these codes that we use. So many people know about the law codes in the ancient Near East, such as the uh, law code of Hammurabi. But what, what exactly was a law code, you know, as we describe them here, as we refer to them? Well, people assume, I think, from hearing the word code, that it's some sort of a complete system that governed, you know, in a, in a, in a normative way, the uh, society, uh, in, you know, in, in which the text was written. That's not really the case. Uh, what we're talking about with the, uh, these, these codes, they're not normative legislation. In other words, you, you don't have uh, ostensibly judges at the time having a case brought before them, and then they say, okay, uh, let's go back to the, to the law code and figure out what we're supposed to do here. It's not, it's not, uh, it does not appear that that's what these, uh, you know, these texts were doing. It's not what they were uh, designed for. Yeah, they had other usage. We won't go into them here. But what we want to point out is these these codes from which we get um, some or a great deal of our information uh, about, you know, legal practices uh, or the laws or the legal traditions. These were not normative legislation. They're not dictating what it is that the law is. Rather, they were the product of, uh, they are the outworkings of, the legal tradition in which they were written. In other words, they represent what the legal tradition was. They did not dictate what the laws were. So it's a fine distinction. We need to be careful when we use these sources to, to keep that in mind. So these sources that we're dealing with, um, we have many of these law codes, and I, I, I during this survey, it's primarily what I'm going to focus on, but there's m- obviously much, much more legal information. You can see uh, some of it in the book, and you can, in the book, see bibliography from you know for where you can get much more information uh, about the sources, the additional sources, other legal texts. But the sources that we have come from... You know, these law codes come from the late 3rd millennium all the way down through the middle of the 1st millennium. And the ones that, you know, we typically hear about are the, uh, you know, the laws of Hammurabi or, you know, the middle of Syrian palace decrees, those sorts of things. We, we, we hear about those uh, more than others, laws of Eshnunna. But, but there are several law, you know, law, quote-unquote, codes uh, from the ancient world. So in the ancient Near East, we also see this distinction between debt slavery and chattel slavery. Debt slavery is, generally speaking, a temporary situation, or it's supposed to be a temporary situation. Oftentimes, the debtor goes into debt slavery and never gets out because he, you know, he never makes enough to to pay off his debt. Um, you have indentured servitude, which is contractual, generally contractual, and it it has a set period of time and then it ends. Uh, you can see in the laws of Hammurabi, which we're going to look at here in just a second, that there was a three year period of time, and they were to be released in the fourth. Chattel slavery, on the other hand, uh, was a, a permanent situation. 
generally speaking, and uh, these were treated as slaves proper. And so, you know, there's no there's no agreement here for when they're going to be released. These are not temporary. In other words, debt slavery is essentially based on a debt. So with the cancellation of that debt or the payment of that debt, the slave is then released. Chattel slavery does not operate that way. Um, there is no debt to be canceled. We also see this distinction between voluntary and involuntary servitude. In many cases, uh, slavery was legally voluntary or maybe technically voluntary, uh, just like we saw in the Hebrew Bible. Someone goes into debt, and they can't pay that off, and so they sell themselves or their family members into what would be considered legally voluntary slavery. Uh, we also have instances, of course, of involuntary servitude, just like in the Hebrew Bible. Someone born into slavery or a thief could be placed into involuntary slavery. Or now, one of the things that I that I one of the things that I hear often is, you know, certainly there couldn't have been chattel slavery in the Hebrew Bible because chattel slaves would have no rights, um, and that there can't be slavery just in general because slaves would would not have any rights, and and that's that's simply not true. Furthermore, there is an argument that I hear quite often where um, s- slavery in the Hebrew Bible is just so much better than what you see in the ancient Near East uh, because they had no rights. Slaves had no rights in the ancient Near East, where in the he- whereas in the Hebrew Bible you do see them having rights. And, and again, that's just not the case. So what I'd like to do is just go through a couple of examples of some of the rights or some of the limits that are placed on the master's and rights of the slaves, limits placed on masters, so that you can see uh, that this is this is just not the case. So, in the laws of Hammurabi, uh, laws one fifteen and one sixteen, we read: If a man has a claim of grain or silver against another man, distrains a member of his household, and the distrainee dies a natural death while in the house of her or his distrainer, that case has no basis for a claim. If the distrainee should die from the effects of a beating or other physical abuse while in the house of her or his distrainer, the owner of the distrainee shall charge and convict his merchant. And if the distrainee is the man's son, they shall kill his, the distrainer's, son. If the man's slave, he shall weigh and deliver twenty shekels of silver. Moreover, he shall forfeit whatever he originally gave as the loan. So there are limits placed upon the master. You can't just beat your slave to death. So here we see limits that are placed upon the master when it comes to the beating of his slave and rules that are that are in place. In the next law, number 117, we see if an obligation is outstanding against a man and he sells or gives into debt service his wife, his son, or his daughter, they shall perform service in the house of their buyer or of the one who holds them in debt service for three years their release shall be secured in the fourth year. So here we see you know, the, the, the law concerning how long someone goes into indentured servitude, and this is for a three-year period as opposed to six that we see in the biblical text. Skipping forward to laws 170 and 71, if a man's first-ranking wife bears him children and his slave woman bears him children, and the father, during his lifetime, then declares uh, to the children whom the slave woman bore to him, saying, My children, and he reckons them with the children of the first-ranking wife. After the father goes to his fate, after he dies, 
the children of the first-ranking wife and the children of the slave woman shall equally divide the property of the paternal estate. The preferred heir is a son of the first-ranking wife. He shall select and take a first share. So these are laws that are rules that are in place for what happens if you have a slave wife. 171. But if the father during his lifetime should not declare uh, to the children whom the slave woman bore to him, saying, My children... After the father goes to his faith, the children of the slave woman will not divide the property of the paternal estate with the children of the first-ranking wife. The release of the slave woman and of her children shall be secured. The children of the first-ranking wife will not make claims of slavery against the children of the slave woman. The first-ranking wife shall take her dowry and the marriage settlement which her husband awarded to her in writing, and she shall continue to reside in her husband's dwelling. As long as she is alive, she shall enjoy the use of it, but she may not sell it. Her own estate shall belong as inheritance only to her children. So these are rules in place um, to ensure that they're showing that there are certain rights that the slave wife and the slave wife's uh, children have. Finally, in the laws of Hammurabi, number 282, if a slave should declare to his master, you are not my master, He, the master, shall bring charge and proof against him that he is indeed his slave, and the master shall cut off his ear. Now, people have read that and said, oh my goodness, look at how awful this is, the treatment of cutting off the ear. The interesting thing about this uh, particular section of the text is that while there is a a punishment for a slave that says, hey, I'm, I'm not really a slave, he's not my master, there are are very specific limits that are placed upon the master. In other words, the master can't just do whatever he wants. He can't treat, you know, he can't just take it upon himself to punish the slave. In fact, he must take and prove that he is, in fact, his his slave. And, and only then, after he has received authorization to uh, cut off the ear, then, then he is allowed to do it. So it, it shows clearly that uh, the slave, as strange as this may sound, definitely has rights and the master has limits placed upon him. The last one I'd like to look at is from the Middle Assyrian Palace Decrees, so, you know, late second millennium BCE. I'm down at number 18. Asherdan, overseer, son of Ninorta apil Akor, himself also overseer, issued a decree for his palace personnel. Either a wife of the king or any other palace woman, if her slave woman commits a punishable offense against her mistress, or, and it's broken, or should commit any misdeed, either the wife of the king or the palace woman whose slave woman committed a punishable offense against her shall strike her 30 blows with rods. So, slave woman does something wrong, She gets beaten. If the slave woman who is beaten by her mistress for her first offense, then there's a broken section, commits a second punishable offense against her mistress, or another broken section, commits a second misdeed, her mistress shall bring her before the king. In the presence of the king, they shall impose upon her the punishment which he shall determine. A second time he shall give the slave woman back to her mistress. So you can see, does it the first time, does it the second time, but listen to the final paragraph. 
If the palace woman whose slave woman she beat in accordance with the royal decree is excessive and the slave dies from the blows, or, in a broken section, the palace woman who has killed her slave woman shall suffer for her insolence. She is held responsible for a punishable offense against the king. So the the mistress of the slave woman has restrictions that are placed upon her. She can't she can't just do things uh, without you know without authorization without permission. And if she does, you know if if, if the slave woman is if the slave is beaten and um, you know abused excessively, then there's punishment for that mistress. So you know the the point is that these um, you know to say that these slaves are simply to be treated as a beat-up old couch, and they have no rights, and there are no limits upon what you can do, and it's simply just not the case, either in the Hebrew Bible or in uh, in the ancient Near East. And this uh, segues into the final thing that I'll say, and, and again, I know this has been incredibly brief, but hey, it's a podcast, what do you want? Again, if you'd like more detail, please uh, pick up my book, Did the Old Testament Endorse Slavery? You can buy it on Amazon. So the last thing I'd like to say is I'd like to talk briefly about the protection of foreigners. So there's this idea, again, I hear this quite often, that, oh, the the Hebrew Bible provides for protection of foreigners, where you don't see that in the ancient Near East. But that's that's simply not the case. There are protections in place for foreigners in the ancient Near East. And again, I discussed this in the book, but let me just give you one example here. In the uh, laws of Eshnuna, um, down in paragraph 41, law 41, if a foreigner, a Naptaru, or a Mudu, and those are three different types of foreigners, wishes to sell his beer, the woman innkeeper shall sell the beer for him at the current rate. Now, you, you might say, well, wow, that's quite a protection there. But the point of the text here is that the foreigner coming into the land would not know what you know the going rates were of these things. And so the law requires that the you know, the tavernist not sell his beer in such a way that cheats him. So there are protections of foreigners that we see in the legal texts uh, that keep the the foreigner from being uh, taken advantage of. Okay, so we've looked at uh, an overview of the uh, laws concerning slavery in the Hebrew Bible and one and an overview of those uh, seen just generally speaking, some of the, the highlights from the ancient Near East. What I'd like to do now is very quickly as we... Uh, uh, come to the final section here of this podcast, is talk about the three major passages, and again, just hitting the highlights here, uh, that deal with slavery in the Hebrew Bible. So the first is Exodus 21. So in Exodus 21, I'm going to talk about four things that uh, are dealt with in the passage. The first is uh, the male slave release versus the the, the maidservant, the ama. So the, in the first portion, uh, first section of Exodus 21, we see that if a male you know, becomes so poor that he sells himself or if someone purchases a male, he is to serve for six years and then go free. And there are you know, other uh, possibilities there. So if he serves for the six years and he is given a wife by his master during that period of service, the wife and any of the children... Uh, belong to the master, the male slave goes out, but but he doesn't take his wife and children with him. However, he can decide that if he loves his master and his children and his wife, that he can have his ear probably disfigured in some way with an awl, 
and uh, he will serve the master forever. Uh, this is juxtaposed uh, in the following section with the ama, the maidservant. So the maidservant does not go out, uh, is not released as the male slaves are, um, but then there are stipulations in place that protect her. So she, you know, if, if, if she does not receive the things that she's supposed to receive, the provisions, uh, then she is to be either allowed to be redeemed or to be set free without payment. Uh, there is a kidnapping Clause in uh, verse 16 of Exodus 21, uh, there's debate about whether this is you know, strictly about Israelites, you can't kidnap an Israelite, uh, or is this uh, something that is just broadly you can't kidnap anyone. I bring it up here because this is often cited in this discussion, and it, it doesn't necessarily have the effect I think that many people think it does. The big section that gets talked about a lot we've talked about briefly is uh, verses 20 and 21 and that is the physical abuse clause so if a if a master if a man uh, beats his male or female slave with a rod and the the slave dies under his hand he shall be nakamed a hebrew word there for punished it's debated about whether that means killed or punished in some way that maybe seems fitting to the judges we won't go into that here but it's you know he's held responsible for that However, in verse 21, if the slave doesn't die, at least immediately, then the, there is no punishment because he is his silver. And so, so I think that this passage deals with keeping slaves from being abused. Uh, and, but of course, abuse does not, is not equated with beating with a rod. Beating with a rod was anticipated. It was, uh, it was expected. And in fact, in Proverbs uh, you know, 29, you can see that um, it's, it's actually advocated. It's encouraged. The final thing I'd like to point out in Exodus 21 is the Goring Ox um, series of laws. And essentially, you have two scenarios that are set up. Uh, an ox that is known to gore and an ox that is not known to gore. So let's take them in the, their correct order. Uh, if an ox who is not known for goring uh, gores someone, you know, the, the, the owner's not punished, um, the ox is killed. And however, if the ox is a known gorer, if it has a, you know, if it's been known to gore in the past and the owner does not take necessary precautions to keep it penned up and away from people so that it can't gore them, and the ox does gore someone, then there are punishments that are set in place. So if it is a, a man, a woman, a son or daughter, then the owner is to be killed. He can, however, pay his way out of that as the, you know, the victim's family sees fit, whatever it is that they see fit to charge him. The pr however, with a slave, the price is set at 30 shekels of silver, and that is to be paid to the slave's master. So, you know, the thing that's important here is that the slave in this section is considered more under property law. However, in verses 20 to 21, you know, where it talks about abuse, they're considered more under family law. So it's interesting how, you know, the biblical text deals with the slave in different in different ways. Moving on, and again, I know we're hitting the highlights, but moving on to Deuteronomy 15, uh, there are two things that we need to talk about here very briefly. One, the release of the female slave has either changed or it's dealing with a different uh, a different type of female slave. Uh, so let me give you the two the, the things. The, the two positions that are generally held. The first is that Deuteronomy 15 has 
uh, developed the rules about slavery, the laws about slavery. So now when the, the female slave was not to be released in Exodus 21, however, in Deuteronomy 15, just as the male slaves are released, so also the female slaves, that's one position. The other is that Exodus 21 is strictly speaking about a female slave that is being sold as a wife or a concubine. And in that sense, of course, they wouldn't go out. Here in Deuteronomy 15, this may be speaking strictly of a, of a general female slave. Uh, in this discussion, however, I think the second uh, update in Deuteronomy 15 is more important, and that is the slave after six years is to be released with provisions. So in the same way uh, as we see in Exodus 21, a slave is to serve for six years and to go free in the seventh. However, here in Deuteronomy 15, there is a development, and that is that the slave is to be provided for liberally, you know, with grain and with wine and, you know, in other words, with provisions so that when they go out, they get a fresh start. They uh, are far less likely to fall back into poverty. And this is a development that we don't see in Exodus 21. Finally, as we kind of wrap up here in Leviticus 25, there's lots and lots that we could say about this passage, but let me hit some of the higher things. Uh, First, the distinction between foreigners and Hebrews in this section is stark. The passage deals primarily with what to do about things like land tenure for the Israelites. So the passage deals with Sabbath rest, it deals with Jubilee, and then it starts to talk about Israelites that start to fall into poverty and various stages and what to do, how to provide for them, how to support them so that um, the Israelites don't stay in poverty and that the land does not get you know um, taken outside of the family ultimately. And so the passage, particularly coming down into, you know, starting down in verse 39, uh, it talks about Hebrew slaves and what to do if somebody falls into poverty so much so that they have to sell themselves as an evid. The text says you're not to treat a fellow Israelite as an evid. You're to treat them as a, um, a hired worker because you were slaves in, in Egypt and uh, therefore you, you, know, you can't treat your fellow Israelites as slaves and ostensibly any longer as you could in Exodus 21 and, and Deuteronomy 15. However, when you get to verse 44, and so so before we move on, so we see that slavery here is considered a, 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 a not great thing. right? I, I don't want to use the word bad. I've used it earlier, but not bad in the moral sense, but it's it's bad in the in the same sense as you know charging someone interest. It's 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 not good for the person being charged interest. And, and slavery is cast in the same light. However, when you get to foreigners in verse 44, you see that foreigners are allowed to be taken from the as, as male and female slaves from the nations around, from the goyim, can also take them from the tenant farmers, the foreign residents that are living in the land. Um, you, you know, they, they become your property. Uh, you can pass them down to your children as inheritance. And they serve forever. You know these are these are the foreigners. So you can take them from the nations around. You can take them from the foreigners that are living in your midst. You know so there's this stark contrast that's drawn between these two groups. But you notice that they're kept for life. They're passed down as inheritance, and they are 
referred to as property. Now, the word property there is the word the Hebrew word achuzah, and the word achuzah here is the word that's used throughout this chapter to talk about the property, the landed property that the Israelites had. And it's the only place that uh, you know, humans are referred to as achuzah, referred to as property. And so this is significant. So they're, they're considered the property of, the foreigners are considered the property, foreign slaves are considered the property of the Israelites and are to be passed down. Now we know that these foreigners that are taken from the nations around or from the, the Toshavim, the, the, the you know, tenant farmers that are living in the land, these are people, interestingly enough, that we see starting in verse 47, these people can become quite wealthy. So we see at the end of chapter 25 a situation where an Israelite becomes poor and has to sell himself not to another Israelite, not to another Hebrew, but to a foreigner, one of these, you know, these foreigners living in the land. And, you know, what is the process? Well, the you know, the, the text talks about how they're to be redeemed. But but nonetheless, these foreign residents, these tenant farmers living in the land, can become so wealthy from from you know this this tenant farming that they're doing, uh, they can become so wealthy that they are able to purchase other Hebrews. So this is significant in this discussion, uh, be, you know, trying to identify who these you know, foreign residents living in the land are, and this can become important uh, in the discussion for who can be taken as a slave and taken and kept permanently. So we've talked briefly about the problems associated with slavery in the Hebrew Bible and in the ancient Near East. And how this uh, debate, you know, manifests itself both in academia and on social media. Uh, we've given a brief introduction to the concepts and the difficulties with defining slavery precisely, but we gave it a good shot, and uh, it holds up pretty well in you know the Hebrew Bible and the ancient Near East in general. Uh, then we gave an overview, very briefly, both of slavery is depicted in the Hebrew Bible and that which is seen in the ancient Near East, just, again, hitting the highlights. Then we looked briefly at each of the major passages in the Hebrew Bible that deal with slavery, so Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 15, and Leviticus 25. So this podcast was intended to be um, you know, just hitting the highlights of slavery in the Hebrew Bible and in the ancient Near East. If you'd like more information on this, Again, I, I do recommend picking up the book, Did the Old Testament Endorse Slavery? You can purchase it on Amazon, uh, both in uh, Kindle and in uh, paperback. And I think that uh, Megan is currently working on putting an iBook together. I think that's what it's called. And I am currently uh, putting the uh, audiobook together. So that should be coming out hopefully in the next couple of months. So that is slavery, uh, an introduction to slavery in a nutshell. Hope this has been useful to you, and I look forward to seeing you again here on the Hebane Podcast.